Welcome to the podcast of ideas. Over the next few weeks and months, we'll be releasing audio from the Battle of Ideas Festival, which took place at the Barbican on the 2nd and 3rd of November 2019. You're about to hear a live interview between me, Ella Whelan, and satirist, author and comedian Andrew Doyle. Hello, good morning and welcome back to the Battle of Ideas Festival on the Sunday morning. Well done for getting here. My name is Ella Whelan. I'm the co-convener of this year's Battle of Ideas Festival. And this strand in conversation with distance came out of myself and Claire Fox, the director of the Academy of Ideas, talking about the fact that there were these kind of meaty issues like comedy and satire later on class later on women's rights that we didn't feel were getting the attention they needed or weren't getting the kind of in-depth discussion they needed and we thought that the way to do it would be to have these in conversations with dissidents and people who have rocked the boat and made a bit of a difference and made a bit of an impact on the discussion to try and dig down into it Um, so really delighted that we're starting this morning with this session at Tanya McGrath satire in the age of social justice and here we have Titania aka Andrew Doyle uh, the brilliant Andrew Doyle who is many things he's a writer co-writer of Jonathan Pye and um, a playwright with dramas for BBC Radio 4 and other places his own plays a columnist for the online magazine Spiked a stand-up comedian um, and shows in the fringe, including Thought Crimes, a writer of musical theatre with adaptations of a wide range of things, from Pinocchio to Huckleberry Finn, and for this session, most importantly, the creator of Titania McGrath, who, if you don't know her, um, is the online Twitter sensation, a real uh, shitstirer, that's the word um, that some people use, um, and he's author of Titania's book, Woke, A Guide to Social Justice. How this session is going to run is that he's not going to whip out a Titania mask from underneath and pretend to be her, but we're going to have a chat and talk about some of the issues of how Andrew deals with, both in his writing and in his comedy, issues around satire, can we be satirical anymore in the kind of mad world we live in, what's going on in relation to free speech and comedy, but also the kind of shifting nature of politics in which you find yourself in bed, metaphorically, um, with lots of strange people, given the new kind of fault lines. Um, We're going to chat and do that for about 25, 30 minutes, and then we're going to come out to you guys for an open discussion. Andrew, let's start off... I want to get on to Tanya later on, um, but let's start off with the uh, Flesh and Blood Man, first of all. And I wanted to pick up on this. I read this great... Well, I thought it was an interesting review that had this great line in it which called you a lefty that the left think is all right, right? Um, Which is a nice way of putting it, actually, that kind of confusion. And just for kind of clarification, I mean, what was it that got you involved in politics in the first place and and left-wing politics? Because you often get, same as I, labelled as kind of all right in that sort of weird way. But what was your political basis? Um, So... I've, I've always been really instinctively interested in politics. And now that I come to think of it, when I was a kid, one of the things I used to love was the, the spitting image general election special, which I recorded on television and watched endlessly over and over and over again. So I think I was just very much into uh, the capacity for, for taking the mick out of those authority figures. But I think um, I've always been attracted to left-wing politics, sort of traditional left-wing politics. And I've also always been quite opinionated, so those things go quite well. Mm. Um, and I ended up... Um, writing of just putting sort of opinion blogs out out there uh 
uh, a number of years ago, and then I started writing for Spiked. And I think writing for Spiked has really focused um, my sort of political sense because I have to write and really think through all my ideas. Mm. And I've, uh, I think I was, in my early days, I was very much sort of typical lefty, quite intolerant of, of, of other people's opinions, and which is a sort of left-wing trait, I understand. And, you know, I'd be... I'd be quite sort of dogmatic. And I think what I've learned over the years is very much to to talk, to listen, the value of conversations. And I do fear that that's what we've lost in politics. So that's sort of my main thing at the moment. That's what I'm most interested in. And why do you... Th- I mean, in looking at the difference between when you first initially got started being interested in politics to now, which, you know, things have changed very much even in the last 10 years. Yeah. Um, why do you think it has changed the nature of left-wing politics, if it has, from your perspective? Because, yeah. you know, those... Is it just that the stereotype of student left-wing politics has become the norm throughout, you know, even politics with a big P? Or Yeah, I think it's such a difficult question. I don't know what's happened, but I think partly it's because people don't read anymore. Hmm. I, I really do suspect that people just don't know what left and right-wing means. I think people now sort of think that if you put a gay rainbow flag on your, on your Twitter profile, that makes you left-wing. I honestly think that this kind of middle-class identity politics has sort of seized the left. Uh, and I think that what self-identifies as the left has become a middle-class movement, mm. has become a more bourgeois movement, with, with utter disdain for the working classes, which is very weird, because, of course, being on the left, it, it has to be about class consciousness, it has to be about uh, emancipation of working-class people, mm. um, which is nowhere to be seen in the, in, in the current pages of The Guardian. Well, I mean, it costs like two fifty a day, so working-class people aren't going to buy it, are they? <laughs> I think what's happened is... I think loads of people, loads of people who come from that old school leftist tradition, do feel like the left has left them. Mm-hmm. I think that's something that's quite a common, a common feeling at the moment. Um, and you could argue well, that's that's you, that's you not sort of progressing with the times and not moving with the times. And maybe, maybe I do have to get more sort of uh, intolerant and bourgeois. I don't know, but like it's not that's not really what I want to do. Mm. So why it's changed, I don't. I, I that's what I'm trying to get at. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm really interested in why that has happened. Mm. And that, I mean, you've you mentioned that. Well, we kind of talked about student politics, but I mean, you and not people not reading enough. Uh, you are literally a Renaissance man in sense of you. Uh, <laughs> but also, you he uh, is incredibly well read and well studied in Renaissance poetry and Renaissance literature. That was sort of yeah. your thing for a while when you imagined you were going to be an academic, as I read. In yeah, one I interview. I did um I did a doctorate in Renaissance poetry. Mm. It's really helped me. <laughs> like, it's really. <laughs> Like, it's good, because like, technically I'm a doctor. Yeah. Like, not a proper doctor, but I can scan a sonnet. <laughs> you know, it's actually, it is quite useless. But when you, were at, when you were at university at that time, do you think, were those kind of problems in relation to... I, I am saying left-wing politics, but yeah. I, think it, I think there's a tendency to kind of just say, oh, lefty student politics like that. Yeah. But I mean, has, was it as bad then as it is now, as intolerant then, or do you think things have shifted quite so quickly? So I, I, I've done a lot of talks at universities uh, recently... And the thing that has really struck me is that the students are, on the whole, really great. Mm. And there is that, and I get really sick of this, um, just dismissing the whole generation as snowflakes or millennials, which isn't right anyway, because yeah. we're talking, actually talking about Generation Z, um, and sort of just dismissing a whole generation. It's not that. What it is is there's a, there's a small minority of very, very angry, woke, vocal activists amongst the student body they're the ones that go into student politics you know like most students don't care about student politics and the, the ones that put themselves up for those th- roles tend to be quite zealous and so you end up with these very sort of and, and i think here's the point we've created a culture where people will, will capitulate 
to that kind of pressure mm. out, out of fear of online uh, mobbing or, or whatever else. They, the, the capitulation is the problem. It's not the, it's not the students. Mm. And I can't emphasise this enough. One of the talks I did two weeks ago, I won't say the university, but it was for the international politics department of the university. And the, um, the students were great. I mean, obviously they come from this kind of more woke mindset, but they were willing to be challenged. They were willing to, be, uh, to discuss these difficult ideas the department had not... They'd refused to publicise the event. They'd said, we won't publish... And they, the, the kids showed me the email. Um, they'd refused to publicise it on the basis that any talk that was antagonistic to woke culture was against their diversity values. <laughs> so that's, that's coming from the... That's coming from my generation. That's coming from the academics. That's coming from Generation X and the, and the late millennials. So I don't buy into this idea mm. that students... That student, students have always been... like Like when I was... At, Uni. I mean, yeah, students have always been a bit zealous and a bit silly, and there's always been a few, few nutcases. But uh, like on the whole, they seem really great to me. I think we've, we have misrepresented a whole generation. It's I think more it's, that the adults uh, are the ones that are. It's us lot. Yeah. And I, I think I think we sort of started. And and ultimately, university. What was great? Do you remember the roads must fall thing in mm-hmm. Oxford? So when they wanted to, the students, a small group again, small group of very bourgeois, privileged students, wanted to tear down the statue of Cecil Rhodes at Oriel College. Uh, the, the, the leader of that um, student activist group said that he felt that every time he walked past the, the, the uh, statue, it felt like he was being punched. And he was on a Rhodes scholarship. <laughs> anyway, so... Um, like, just like, a re- really posh kid who just, who just is desperate to be a victim, uh, victim. And... Um, but the university said no. Said no. We're, that's our statue. We're, we're leaving it. Thanks, because hmm. he's a colonialist. And guess what? People back then had different ideas yeah. about the world. Yeah. Um, and you, you know, and that's what you have to say. I think when you get these sort of extreme zealous, not just students, people in general public life, mm-hmm. people calling for comedians to apologise for jokes. All this. You just have to say, look, no, mm. fuck off. Yeah. You don't. You don't get to d- dictate this stuff, yeah. and we're not going to capitulate to you. And 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 the more people do that the more we'll realise that this, it's such a minority. Most people realise it's stupid. And, and you must be well rehearsed in being able to say, uh, I won't do that or not to capitulate. Yeah. Can you remember the first... I think part of when I talk about um, the ability to stand up against the kind of um, a culture, council culture, as it's called today, yeah. you have to recognise that the first time you encounter that, it's pretty rough. It's a shock, um, isn't and it? And especially work, with you working in comedy clubs and getting rub, rubbing up against the particular kind of censorious culture that's growing yeah. there. I mean, do you remember the first time or the first kind of catastrophic time that you ever that it actually kind of hit you that you were going to be saying things that were going to perhaps remove you from certain yeah groups of polite society? Yeah, it's were? it's that's a really interesting one because when I started doing stand up, I was saying the stuff that was the fashionable stuff. Mm. I'm still, I'm still saying the same principle. I've, got the same, I've refined my ideas, but I've got the same principles, but now those principles are no longer fashionable. Mm. So things like freedom of speech is quite an unfashionable idea. Mm. You know. Yeah, when did that happen? I know what it was. It was Brexit, I think. Mm. So I think it was... I did a show at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival two months after the Brexit vote or whenever. That, no, it was the August, so like a couple of months after the Brexit vote. And I addressed it in the show. And you could tell that there was... You know, this is an arts festival. 97% of comedians voted... Remain and I voted leave, mm-hmm. and to convey that to an audience of almost exclusively, rem- and even the leave voters in the audience would never have admitted it. It became like a thing you couldn't say, like a dirty secret. Mm. And I realised then I, I thought, but this is great for comedy. Yeah, like it's 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 perfect. You can you know, part of what I like doing is annoying people. <laughs> like that that's that, but that's also what's funny. To, that's also what's great about satire. Is you know, yeah. satire can't be effective unless you're pissing people off. Mm. 
you know, yeah. and you, you're annoying the right people, you know, and not gratuitously. And I'm not going out of my way to be offensive. Mm. And I've never ha- have done that. And I don't like bullying. I've got a real issue with bullying. I hate that sort of thing. And, mm. and, and, and so I don't target people. I don't, you know what I mean? But yeah. people in power, politicians, yeah. they're fair game, aren't they? Well, yeah, no, well, let's, I mean, let's use you in an article that you wrote for Spike to use this brilliant quote from wh Jordan. i'm going to read it out to you satire is angry and optimistic it believes the evil it attacks can be abolished comedy is good tempered and pessimistic it believes that however much we might wish it we cannot change human nature and must make the best of a bad job and i mean that setting up that distinction let's talk about satire then and your work in relation to that because that would suggest and your use of that in that article would suggest that it's actually you know, it's entertainment, obviously, and Sir McGrath's funny, and Jonathan Pye was funny, but it's also got a political motive yeah. in there to attack the evil at seeing yeah. the world. But often, often I get criticised saying, oh, you've got an agenda, so you're hiding behind this female character as an agenda. But like, satire has an agenda. Yeah. Otherwise, it's not satire. So I don't see that as a problem. Mm. Uh, and they say, you know, but you're hiding behind a woman, you're speaking through a woman that's been accused of blackface, it's the equivalent of blackface. Mm. I mean, it's it's. She, she sometimes is black, um, but it's like it's like they they haven't heard of the concept of an author writing a character. Mm. Like it's so weird to me. Mm. And you would ne- you would never have had that years ago, even if there was a, a satirical thing that was annoying people. Mm. And I understand why people are annoyed. I get it. Like if if, if someone's mocking me, I'm not going to enjoy it. Yeah. Like that's fine. I don't mind people being offended or upset or any, all the rest of it, but. You know, they, 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 they don't see the satirical value of it because they're the target, yeah. basically. Yeah. And do you, I mean, do you think that there's almost, within the reaction against satire, obviously there's the specific politics of it because right. the thing that you're, and you sometimes get told that you're punching down, and maybe we yeah. can talk about that in a bit, but what I wanted to see what you thought about was this sort of, there's almost this obsession with reality that's in relation to the kind of woke politics. Yeah. That means... You know, the, we've got it in literature and other places. You cannot pretend to be someone else. And of course, you said elsewhere in the interview with Giles Fraser, when you get up on stage, you are a, you are not the true no. Andrew Dahl. No, if any of you know stand-up comedians, you know this. Like, so you meet them off stage; they're not the same person. It's a, we're playing a role. And whether that's, I mean, in my case, I just exaggerate all my worst features mm. on stage because that's funny to me. You know, it's not the same person. It's an essentially theatrical thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think partly the reason it's happened is that there's a, it's more to do with the arts in general, which is I think there's this kind of thing that's happened where people believe that art needs to send the right message, that, that art should be pedagogic, that it should be teaching you something uh, and then entertaining you second, you know? So if the message is wrong, they see it as dangerous, um, which I think is a complete misunderstanding of what art is I mean I'm on a panel later about this but I don't think art has got anything to do with morality at all Mm -hmm. Um, but that is what I think are you sending the right message and that's why you're seeing all this sort of you know the the comedians need to apologise if they're they're... and I think it comes down to a a view of a kind of degraded view of humanity I think what the woke movement is guided by is a mistrust of human beings Mm -hmm. and that's I think because it comes from a bourgeois background so they don't so they see the masses as like these sort of malleable beings that will just erupt into violence if they hear a joke that, that, that they're mis- they'll misinterpret it you know because they're not they didn't go to private school they won't understand the joke and they might they might go out and you see they don't do that with like the middle class comics no. when, when Jimmy Carr was telling uh, rape jokes and then no one ever said anything it, it was when Dapper Laughs did it yeah. it's when the working class audience is here you can't trust them mm-hmm. that's, that's the implication you know so uh, and that's why I think it's all tied up with the we all know this the, the people I'm sat whenever you hear whenever you read a Guardian op-ed or, or hear um, 
you know, a, a woke columnist or a woke commentator, you can hear from their plummy voice. You can hear it. They're, they're privately educated. They're, they're, they've had everything on a plate. And they're saying, look at me, I'm a victim. Mm-hmm. How is that not funny? Mm-hmm. How, I, I don't understand it. Like, that... Well, yeah. I mean, that lack of self-awareness is hilarious. It's, it's, look, I, I'm never denying that someone who uh, doesn't experience racism or homophobia or, or, or whatever, but if, you've got, if you come from Kensington and, and you used to go on holidays in Val d'Isere as a kid and you're, and you're a millionaire and, you know, and then you're going on, online mm-hmm. bitching about being a victim, my sympathy is limited, mm-hmm. to, to be honest. Because, I mean, I, I used to teach at a private school in London terrible one in Sloan Square and um, it was um, uh, I was teaching there and the girls used to come up and talk about what they'd done in the holidays and they were like oh yeah daddy got me this great internship uh, at the old Vic and, uh, and, and, and no self-awareness just you know obviously it's all context it's all nepotism and you could be a, le- a black lesbian girl at that school and you're fine you're just fine you've got everything yeah. uh, you know that's not to say you won't face racism mm-hmm. But on the whole, you're going to do much better than someone from a council estate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You just are. So a bit of self-awareness is all I'm sort of trying to get at. Yeah. Well, do, well let, let's dig into woke then. Yeah. Because I think the, the, the tension that I have with it is that it's got two sides to it. So there's the very true side that you've been talking about that needs to be criticised in terms of the woke culture. Yeah. And then it gets used as this kind of throwaway term by often right-wingers yeah. as you know, everything that's got anything to do with racism or anything like that is just woke nonsense. It's a bit like snowflakes. It originally, the concept snowflake originally meant something quite serious. Yeah. Now it's just been turned into a kind of exactly, a yeah, slow yeah. word or an insult. But the thing I wanted to ask you about woke is, is it just a kind of bourgeois fantasy? Um, or does it have any... What I mean is, is, is it got any interest in actually shaping the lives of the mass of, masses oh, no. of black people or yeah. gay people, or is it just a kind of bourgeois fantasy? No, I think, I think it's really well-intentioned. I think 99% of woke activists think that the world is crawling with fascists, and they, and they think working-class people are feral, mm. and they think they need to, to, to do something. And they're obsessed, they're obsessed with these nebulous power structures in society that they think control everything. What's really happened is, about 30 years ago, you know... Um, Foucault and Derrida, all the post-structures were really fashionable at university. They've gone out of date now. No one, no one talks about them now, but it's seeped into the mainstream. So you have this half-understood version of Foucauldian theory dominating everything. And, and the other thing, of course, is because we live in a culture that isn't equal, right? So, so 7% of us are educated privately. But those 7% dominate everything, media, arts, journalism, law, everything, government, right? So... What happens, of course, is you get a middle-class agenda being pushed and mainstreamed, and that's what's happened with the woke culture. But I, what I don't think it is is, is, um, is uh, manipulative and conspiratorial. I think people think it's true. I think people think... I think people honestly now think if, the, if when Mary Poppins has chimney soot on her face, she's attacking black people. I think... I, no, I think they've convinced themselves of that. And, I, and, it's, and it's obviously absurd, you know, but I... I, I is that a kind of, does that come from a kind of bad faith, is it a bad faith experience of your fellow citizens? Because, I mean, it, you and I know, and I think it's general, general to say most people know that actually not, if you don't go, in, you know, if you go into a working men's club or something, you're not going to meet a bunch of racists and thugs or like yeah. all these stupid stereotypes or stupid stereotypes. That's what I mean by, is it a fantasy? It's like... Well, they never interact with those people. Is it a kind <laughs> of a, and is that then a kind of a, dis, a, a hardening of, 
old divide lines in society, class divide lines, if you want? Um, I think it is. I think, I think class is the, 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 the main issue, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Because, because the, the post-structuralists decided to replace class and economic concerns with gen- gender, race and sexuality and identity concerns. And that now seems to be the thing. Well, of course, ultimately, you know, I've, I've said this before, but I think if you wanted genuine, genuine equality, if, you, if you're serious about quotas, then just go to the BBC or whatever and say only 7% of your workforce can come from private schools. I don't think they'd do that. <laughs> but if you did that, you would sort out all the, all the other stuff. Race, gender, sexuality would be done overnight. It'd be done overnight. But they don't do that. What they do is the BBC advertises for internships for non-whites only and ends up with a bunch of posh BAME people who didn't need your help anyway, thank you. So, so this is the... It's, and that, that's the other thing about it. So all very well-intentioned, but very, very patronising. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I had a, a conversation recently about um, comedians joking about Islam. <coughs> And, 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 and the person was saying, you know, that, that actually that there shouldn't be jokes about that. And all I could think was, how low is your opinion of Muslims? Why, why do you see Muslims? Why, why are you patronising these people? Why do you think they can't tell a, take a joke? Why do you think that they, you know, they can't look after themselves? I've, I find it incredible. This, all this sort of stuff mm-hmm. is paternalistic, uh, really offensive, genuinely racist, mm-hmm. actually. Um, but but, but think has convinced itself that it's a good thing. Mm-hmm. And that's what... I, that's why it's so hard to deal with because, well, you know this. I mean, I, you all know anyone who's had people attack them on Twitter in the most vicious way. I mean, whenever that happens to me, it happens to me a few times a day. I'll normally go to the, I go to the, the Twitter bio and nine times out of ten there are pronouns in that bio. <laughs> and what those pronouns are meant to do is say, look, I'm virtuous, I'm good, I'm a good person. Fuck you! Die in a volcano! <laughs> right, so... And it is that odd, it's bullies who don't know they're the bullies. The whole thing legitimises bullying and they don't know it. They think they're doing, because they've convinced themselves that you're Nazis. They've convinced themselves that you're evil and therefore it's okay to be dehumanising and vicious. All the things that they claim to hate, they end up embodying. And that's, that's, why, it's hard, that's why I think it's really hard mm. uh, to, to penetrate because it's a cult mentality. Mm. You can't, and, and, and when someone refuses to sit down and discuss and reason, they're just going to become more and more embedded yeah. in, in that worldview. That's why I thought satire would be a good approach, but yeah. it just seems to make them angrier. And, <laughs> and how, before I want to now move on to Tanya, but before that, how, how, how do you, <clears throat> have you dealt with the fact that you've become a bit of a, not, you know, well, not a bit, but you've become a kind of notorious figure in terms of, you know, I get it with most of my friends are either apolitical or... Uh, lefties, uh, certainly none of them are pro-Brexit. Yeah. Have your social circles or the, the world in which you previously worked in, has that changed? Have you found yourself, as I said at the start, in kind of metaphorically in bed with people that you never thought you yeah, might be? Yeah, hugely. It's the weirdest thing. I've lost a lot of friends. It's one thing, like, I, I'm, I'm, most of the arguments I now have on Twitter and things are people who are telling me things I don't believe as if I believe them. You know, you, you think this and you think this. And, you're, and I, I'm like, I don't think any of those things. And it's this, you get used to being completely mischaracterized. You get used to it. Uh, they're, they're fighting with a, a version of me they've, they've created. It's a character. Mm. There's, like two, there's like me and then there's this Andrew Doyle character mm. who they've created and they go after. And it is quite exhausting. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is quite upsetting. Um, because if you say, but I don't think, I, you know, I don't believe what you're saying, I believe. Yeah. And they're like, yeah, but you would, you would say that, wouldn't you? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's that thing about... That's why I never want to... I never like to try and guess the motives mm. of someone I'm arguing with. That's why I wouldn't want to say with the woke crew, 
they're doing it for their own self-advancement. I'm sure some of them are. Yeah. But I can't assume that mm-hmm. because it would make me make me a hypocrite. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. But, well. but it's but in terms of sorry, just to say in terms of I mean, there are friends of mine who have literally bought into that, that's what's weird it's okay strangers do it yeah but when friends who know you full well mm. suddenly start calling you a nazi you think but you know me you've known me for years you i've you know i don't have any sympathy for the third right <laughs> sure surely as and if if you thought that why are you my friends yeah. why, why it's really weird um so i don't know i mean and i end up i now have lots of friends who are conservatives mm-hmm. um and what's been very interesting and very eye-opening is all the people that I've been told over the years they're the de- they're monsters, you know, or the famous right wing, they're mon- the demons, have been the loveliest people I've ever met, mm, mm. and the very people who the media tell you are the big saints of the left, some famous ones who I won't name, who I know are absolute cunts, <laughs> and it's it's an incredible reversal of the. the it's, it's that belief that you're doing the right thing may, makes you a nasty person. Mm-hmm. Just, you justify the nastiness to yourself. Mm-hmm. But what I'd say is never believe the characterisation of, of these people on, in the media, ever. You know, it's just not... Mm-hmm. You will never know uh, a media pundit or a, a celebrity. You don't know them. Uh, so don't believe the characterisation because it's, ne- it's turned out... It's really shocked me, actually. Mm, yeah. I sit talk to someone who's like, supposed to be this rabid right wing. I'm like, God, you're really nice yeah. and really sensible and, and you're not what they say you are. Yeah. So, Well, let's talk about someone who, who can be all things she says she is, Titania. Tell us about how you came up with the concept of her. So um, there was a character called Godfrey Elfwick on Twitter who was run by uh, two people. It was invented by a guy who, who never wants to be named and Lisa Graves, who's a friend of mine, um, and he was a genderqueer Muslim atheist who um, <laughs> was like the, the, the scourge of uh, the sort of social justice movement on Twitter. He'd, like, he'd, he'd engage with them and people would fall for it and it was really great. Um, and I loved that because it ties into this tradition of satire of people making up characters, making up personas and, and, and speaking through a persona and tricking people. And I love all that hoax kind of stuff. Yeah. I, love jo- I love Joe Orton's stuff where he you know, write, wrote, wrote letters to complain about his own plays to the press <laughs> under the name of Mrs. Edna Wellthorpe. I love all that sort of stuff. Um, so there's a big tradition of this kind of thing. And um, I just thought, for this Twitter age, for this social media age, uh, she was doing it, Lisa was doing it really brilliantly. Mm. And I was corresponding with her because she liked the sort of Jonathan Pye videos I was writing, and so she was messaging me about that. And then I said, you know, I've always wanted to do this. And she said, if Peter Cook were alive today, he'd have five or six characters on Twitter. This is what you should be doing. Mm. So, so she actually encouraged me to do it. And then I used to have a poet character called Magdalena Slash, uh, which I wrote many years ago. Oddly, this is going to sound really bad. It was a school newspaper. I was the editor. I was a teacher. And, I, and we had to fill up space, so I used to just write really pretentious poems under this guise of this character. Um, and I thought I could do like that sort of thing. So I made her a slam poet. Because also, slam poetry is terrible, right? <laughs> and and uh, you just have to pause in weird places. And... Um, Sorry, I don't mean to denigrate an art form, but come on. And, um, and they take themselves so seriously. I remember when they stand on the stage and they do this thing. <sighs> now I'm ready. <laughs> it's so funny. Um, so I, uh, I thought she could be that, and she could like, write these really awful poems. And then I started having fun with the poems. I started writing them quite well. <laughs> so there's so it like, a sonnet in that book, which, is, which scans perfectly as an Elizabethan sonnet, just for the hell of it. Yeah. Um, but, but then I thought, um, okay, so... Uh, I'll make her a slam poet. I'll make her a radical intersectionist feminist, posh as hell, really posh. Mm. Um, so the type of recognisable person. Mm. Um, and I just make her really extreme, and, and it's a lot of fun. It was so much fun not being known. Mm. I love just being her. 
And has, I started... it, has it changed since you? Or has... Yeah, I, um, I was outed. It happened the week the book was out, and it looked like I planned it. Right. Because then that became like a news story. Yeah. And I did like Piers Morgan and stuff, and yeah. it was like it became a thing. Uh, I didn't do that deliberately. Someone found out. Um, yeah, so that was the uh, that was the genesis of it. And then the picture, actually, Lisa made the picture for me because she does graphic design. So she put together the features of four different women, mm. put some glasses on, you know. And what's good, what was great about that picture, I think, is that she's so po-faced. It, it, it almost has that effect of um, a dead dead pan delivery on Twitter because you, you you've got the, the the tweet and you look at that face looking at you like I dare you to <laughs> have a go at me, you know. It's kind of, that's what, I think that really helped yeah. it. And why do you think she's resonated so much with people? Because it's not just as simple as just poking fun. No. I mean, she's wi- wildly popular. Do you think that actually secretly, or perhaps now not so secretly, people are just dying to rip the yeah. piss out of woke? I think people are just sick of being told they're racists, mm. basically. We live, in a con- we live in a country where to be a racist, is, you, it makes you a pariah. You know, you don't. They're, they're, you can't be openly racist and good, right? We've reached that point. We've reached kind of social consensus on this, and yet you've got these people who are telling us that we're all people are sick of it. Mm. You know, I think that's. I think that's that's pretty much the basic thing, and because so few people are are, are willing to mock them because of the the danger inherent in doing so. Mm-hmm. Because I'd reached a point in my career where I don't care anymore. Mm. It's it's fine, mm-hmm. um, but I get from it. Like if I was, you know, because I, I I often get accused of saying. Oh, you always say you you can't say anything anymore, right? I get that a lot. That's another one of these mischaracterizations. I've never said that because I don't think that. I say exactly what I want, but I also know that if I was still working at the call centre where I used to work or as a teacher where I used to work, uh, there's no way I'd be joking the way I do. And there's no way I'd be even joking with my colleagues. I'd do what everyone else does, which is encrypt your jokes on WhatsApp in case you get misinterpreted. Mm. So it's that thing about people are sick of the misinterpretation. And it happens in every corner of life. People were sick of it after Brexit. Mm. You know, suddenly being told that 17.4 million people are racist. You know, that's, it's not good enough. Mm. We live in one of the most tolerant countries in the world. We should have a bit of self-awareness about that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And trying to, and what we're doing, of course, is by, by, by saying that everything is racist, we're making our country more racist, right? So I look back to when I was a kid, people didn't notice stuff. People didn't notice the fact that the top 40, if you watch old Top of the Pop shows... It's mostly black acts, actually, back then when I was a kid. Uh, no one noticed this or cared. Um, there seems to be this weird amnesia about, about women in film. And, like, people talk about, oh, it's amazing, like, we've got, uh, you know, Brie Larson and people like that, the, the, the first... Fe- I'm like, Terminator? Aliens? Yeah. Long Kiss Goodnight? When, I was at, when Long Kiss Goodnight came out in 1996, and you've got Gina Davis, one of the toughest action heroes in Hollywood history, no one ever said, isn't it weird that there's a woman action hero? No one said it. No one noticed. No one cared. Mm. You know? But now you notice it. Now you're like, oh, that's a really feminist film, isn't it? It's a really sort of empowering film. It's like, no, no one, no one noticed this stuff. So what I'm saying is we got to a point where the momentum was just right and it would all have been fine. And we just fucked it. Mm. Basically. <laughs> that's, that's what happened. And now we notice everything. And now I'm watching a play... And it's a predominantly black cast, and I'm thinking, oh, I see, they've been cast to fulfil these woke sort of crap. Rather than thinking, rather than watching and enjoying the performances of these undoubtedly talented people, it's all become racialized. Mm. A friend of mine mentioned about her friend who's a, he says he's never felt more black. 
He never, he, he, now he feels really black because he's so aware of it and he never was aware of it before. Mm-hmm. Colour blindness was the goal. That was a wonderful thing. It was a beautiful idea that you treat everyone equally irrespective of who they are. It's a wonderful thing. That's what Martin Luther King believed, right? That's what we were aiming for. And then these intersectionists come in and fuck it. And, they, and they're like, no, you're... And in fact, you get people like Robin DiAngelo, the author of White Fragility, saying that if you say, I don't see colour, you're a racist, right? But you don't re- literally mean I don't see colour. You mean I don't care about colour. That's it's a metaphor. They're not good with metaphors. No. Um, and actually, to, so she, she actually said, like, if you don't treat people differently on the basis of their race, you're racist. Mm-hmm. In other words, unless you're racist, you're a racist. <laughs> well, before we go back out to the... I want to come out to the audience now, but I've just got two last questions. And the first is, moving forward um, in terms of using satire, in a world in which you have presence of the United States sending out yeah. entirely hilarious... Really funny, like, yeah. Really funny tweets. <laughs> Not funny, but it is funny. Um, and the craziness that's going on in our own kind of political situation yeah. alongside the identity politics turned woke culture thing. I mean, how hard is it to write satire at the moment when it seems like everything has become, it's, you know, it's very hard to take the mick and poke fun at something and send something up when it's so entirely mad anyway. Yeah, it is a bit mad, isn't it? I mean, the thing with Trump is the funniest, um, Trump is funny. That's the thing, he's really funny. And, and so to write jokes about Trump is difficult because he's funnier than you are. <laughs> and and uh, there was that tweet he did recently about Ilan Omar, was, you know when she was going to go to Palestine mm. uh, to see her grandmother, was it? I think, yeah. And uh, they, they, uh, they revoked it and she posted uh, the, the message from, from, from the Israeli government saying she couldn't go there. And uh, he said, well, the only winner here is her grandmother, they won't have to see her. Which is... <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean... And I don't... By the way, I, I don't want the President of the United States to be a comedian. Yeah. I, I, I'm really old-fashioned. I, I, I want the President of the United States to be statesmanlike, diplomatic, not calling the head of North Korea fat. <laughs> you know, th- I, want someone, I want someone sensible in that office. Yeah. I don't want Trump in that office. Um, but I have to admit, when he, when he makes me laugh, because he does have that skill. Um, so... Yeah, I, no, it is a bit, it is a bit crazy, and um, but I don't think that makes it harder. I think, I think it's just, it's just, it gives, it gives you more opportunities, doesn't it? Yeah. My career's done so well since Trump. It's really, it was so helpful because mm-hmm. the big Jonathan Pye video we wrote was straight after Trump's election. Mm. Uh, that was the big viral one. So that, if he hadn't got in, like that wouldn't have happened. So it's great. Okay, very good. And the last question I want to ask you is how optimistic you are about political change, mm. because as you said key part of all the underpinning of all of this work that you're doing obviously there's the separate art forms that you're invested in whether it be writing plays and music and comedy but the political side of it which is more in relation to the satirical works you do how optimistic are you about those fundamental left-wing transformative politics that you have how how optimistic are you about that still being possible in a world which feels like the people in power are listening to woke rather than listening to or thinking about a wider kind of societal change. I I am optimistic that it can change but I think in order to redress those issues that we still have in a a country that is riven by economic deprivation uh, we won't be able to solve that until we trash woke Mm -hmm. it's got to go and and Labour has to drop identity politics that's the first way Mm -hmm. Um, it's so immured in it 
Jeremy Corbyn stood up the other day and announced his pronouns. Was anyone here confused about his pronouns? <laughs> so, like, it's 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 you know, it's alienating it's alienating people uh, horribly. And so, I think, yeah, it, we have to as a, the woke culture is an infantilized culture. It's it's people who are not capable of critical thinking anymore. It's people who aren't aren't thinking for themselves. They're thinking through an ideology. If you talk to someone who is woke. You're not talking to a person, you're talking to a textbook. It's a really weird experience. Like, if, someone, if I meet someone and they, they say something woke, just one woke thing, I could tell you their values in every area. I could tell you everything. They never surprise you. And that means they've lost their individuality, they're not thinking for themselves. And I think, really, that's why I think education is the key to all of this. I, the, the only solution, I think... I mean, I can mock them and people can mock them and we can write endless columns attacking it. But, of course, they all double down on that stuff. It doesn't work, really. If you look at when Obama the other day made a very sensible point about how what we need now is not woke people punishing anyone who makes a mistake once in their life, not this cancel culture, not this kind of uh, this belief that there is no redemption, but we need some nuance. We need to understand that life is messy and that people aren't perfect. And then the New York Times writes a, an article saying, yeah, whatever, boomer. <laughs> that's their response. Their response, and that's mainstream press, their response is to basically confirm the point he made to begin with. So how do you fight that? Every time you mock it, they double down and they get worse. They think that's the way to deal with it. Um, how, I don't know how you do that, but I think ultimately we've got, we've got to win it. The culture war, I think, is much more important than people understand because nothing else can be achieved. If we live in a society where we don't have free speech, which is, at, which is the end point of woke culture, mm. is, is that we don't have free speech, we are in a lot of trouble. And I think that's why it has to be about education. So I would like to see critical thinking, not as a subject in of itself, but as a kind of principle embedded in our education from primary school age. I want it to be so that people understand. the base, So I used to teach critical thinking A-level on a very basic level. Uh, you fail that course if you, if you use an ad hominem slur. As soon as you insult the person and not address the argument, you've lost. You get an E, right? Well, you would... Come on. I mean, look at our major media commentariat. They don't know that. They don't know that. They don't know that basic thing. As soon as you mischaracterise someone else's argument, it's a straw man. You lose. You've lost. So... Once, we've, once we get back, but then, of course, now the woke culture will say, yes, but these are sort of principles of argument and the Socratic method. Socrates was a white man. <laughs> so, now, so now we have to abandon logic and reason. Yeah. Uh, and, and it can't work. It's, it's a kind of, it's, it's a destructive spiral. Um, we need to be able to think for ourselves again. You need, we need, you know, and it's going to be hard because people's identities, identity politics is now about political identity people feel so uh involved in their politics that is them mm. and they, there's this thing called an identity quake when you're shaken out of a firm belief system mm. and it's horrible and it's traumatic um but people are going to have to go through it mm -hmm. i'm sorry I'm, I'm getting quite upset identity quake i think that's a good time to open up right let's see some hands we've got microphones let's start right at the front here george orwell writing in the 1940s seems to have predicted our post-truth world and Brexit. He said, in our age, there is no such thing as keeping out of politics. All issues are political issues, and politics itself is a mess of lies, evasions, folly, hatred, and schizophrenia. Particularly on the left, political thought is sort of a masturbation fantasy, in which all the facts hardly matters. Would you agree? Okay, thank you. One microphone, just... Who's got it there? Yeah, there. First of all, uh, a comment on your degree in poetry. 
Are you sure that that doesn't help you with the development of your slam poetry for Titania? <laughs> uh, secondly, with regard to the Rhodes statue and the, uh, them backing down on that one, that might have had something to do with their donors of hauling back on the endowments. And when you autograph, if you do autograph, woke, do you autograph it as Andrew Doyle or as Titania? And if you do autograph it as Titania, does she have a special signature? I, I uh, would point out, of course, that you did find a publisher for the book. So um, the, the, the fact that it got published would suggest some hope. I also um, heard that, that Spitting Image was making a comeback, which you mentioned. Um, and thirdly, um, I noticed your comedy night has sold out this month. So is there room for hope in, in all of this? Um, could you maybe talk a bit more about your audience? So you said you like to piss off your audience, right? When you talked about, when you talk about Brexit, for instance, in a an audience full of Remainers. Um, is your audience a woke audience, or is it anti-woke? Is it, would it be fine for you if your audience thinks exactly like you? Curious to hear about that. Okay, thanks. One more, and then we'll come back to Andrew, yes. A theme that uh, keeps running across these talks, and other talks that I'm sure everyone else goes to, is that it all stems down to education, teaching children how to think for themselves. But do you think that's even possible, given today's educational climate? Okay, thank you. Come back on anything you like there. There's loads, aren't there? Yeah, the show's sold out, right? Um, and the book was published. Uh, and so what you could say is, uh, well, you're, you're doing quite well out of, uh, out of this, supposed, you know. But I've never claimed to be cancelled or being silenced or mm. anything like that. I don't think that is happening. But the fact that the book got published is a kind of minor miracle, I think. Uh, the publishing industry is so woke. Um, and it wasn't easy. It was championed by certain people within the publishing house. Mm. Um, but I would suggest that most publishers wouldn't have no. gone with this book. And there have been people in the media have commented how surprised they are that a major publisher went with it. Um, so it's always gonna, there's always going to be a bit of uh, pushback. Hopefully more and more people will do it. Yeah. Um, and, of course, as well, in terms of the comedy world, younger comics are very unlikely to mock woke culture because they want to end up on Mock the Week and they want to end up on on BBC. Uh, so it isn't about censorship. I'm not, I'm not talking about censorship. I'm talking about self-censorship. I'm talking about people who, are, who change their artistic direction because they're afraid for their career. That, that's really what's, what's happening. And you can always point to a few successful anti-woke comics because you like Dave Chappelle's doing fantastically well, multimillionaire and everything. So, but, but no one's claiming that, that anyone's being silenced. No one's claiming that. We're talking about a culture uh, that doesn't allow the art form of comedy to thrive. And that's what's happening. What were the other questions? There's something in relation to education. Yeah. Because, and, the, and the interesting thing about that is that... So you've got... Taking the example of what's happening at universities, with the backlash against... That's sort of growing. Yeah. Against censorship. Um, sense, genuine censorship in relation to policies and stuff at universities. Or a sense that kind of we need to do something about the issue of free speech. People are implementing yeah. and saying we need to have classes in... Uh, free speech or right. we need to have policies on free speech um, or we need to that that I always sort of go ooh, like that when I hear people say oh we need to educate people better about this because the fear is that further interference leads to yeah. further bastardization yeah, of exactly. the concept of it's really hard I don't like it when people are legislating for free speech mm. like I just find that a bit a bit weird uh, yeah I think it's about inculcating values in children. I don't know whether at the moment it's not possible and partly that's again because of my generation because I think we... Actually Claire Fox's book is really good on this about um, 
She wrote a book called I Find That Offensive. She talks about this uh, idea of the, the, res- the, the culture that has created a, a generation that are not very resilient. And whereas I say don't call this whole generation snowflakes, when I was a teacher, we did, uh, we did have a problem with, with resilience. Any kind of criticism uh, could, could spark very, you know, very extreme reactions. Uh, and that's something that teachers could do a lot more to do. Is, you have to take it seriously if someone's being bullied, if, 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 if a kid has got some issues. Of course you take it seriously. But there are some times where you have to say, sorry, that's life. You know, and that you have to take that stance. And we're not doing that very well at the moment. Um, but also just that thing of... of, of of teaching kids to think for themselves. I don't know how you do it when, when, when the profession is so overwhelmed with wokeness. I think one of the, f- the best things you could do is teach young people that, that, that words are not violence. That's the, the, one of the best things you can do. I did a workshop recently where one of the participants, on comedy, by the way, one of the participants cl- complained that they felt unsafe because of one of the tweets I'd done as Titania. So then it becomes a safety issue. And, it, and it's, I think it's really important that people in authority say, I'm sorry, no. You are not unsafe. You're not, mm. right? It's it, and and you have to be a bit firm about that when you're dealing with young people. Mm-hmm. I don't know how. I don't have the answers. Mm-hmm. I can just criticise and mock. Okay, let's see some more hands. So let's take the microphone. Hi. Um, at the uh, Labour conference recently, I was um, attacked by um, Labour students, um, and I realised why they'd been thrown out. Um, because uh, I um, was telling them that I was hosting a meeting about uh, Labour for Republic. And then, basically, I was told that, um, yes, but Meghan has modernised the royal family, uh, basically, in, in, in other words. And, and, I, and, I, and I was told... Yes, but you wouldn't understand what Meghan has done for uh, for people for black people or you know pe- people you know who aren't white because because you're not because because you're white and I, I actually said but you're not mixed race they said and I I was actually I am I'm I'm half Jewish but okay carry on that um, <laughs> and so I just sort of thought this woke culture seems to have seeped into kind of this privileged world as you've said where you know someone who's married into an elite institution. Is is woke? Yeah. Uh, even though she'll have everything done for her forever, uh, and it is now taboo to criticise her. So is Titania a royalist? I want to know. <laughs> yeah, brilliant. That's great. With the microphone. That's really funny. Um, I want to bring up the point you made about um, cancel culture. Is it actually cancel culture, or is it just holding people accountable for their actions? Mm-hmm. Okay. Thanks. Um, next to you there. So I suppose one thing I wanted to talk about, just the overall idea of satire. So I finished my undergraduate at Sussex University, and I did this module, my last term module, where you had to write a 5,000-word essay. The module was US and the world. So we're thinking, you know, George Bush and foreign policy individuals. And I spoke to one guy who had finished his essay, and he told me that he had to use a culturally referent object, which was Black Panther, the film, to try and understand U.S. foreign policy, um, which was recommended by uh, his seminar tutor, and at the end of it was marked down because of the fact that he didn't talk about the masculine cultural imprint of the Vietnam War. And in a sense, I wanted to ask, when you're sort of creating the character of Titania, whether that content is just sort of spoilt for choice, perhaps, (laughs) or in a sense you have to be marginally imaginative at times. Let's come back on that because yeah. there's those and also the cancel culture. Yeah, there's a few. Oh, yeah, so in terms of cancel culture, I think, you're, I think you're right. I think cancel culture as a phrase is inherently hyperbolic. You know, like, it implies death, doesn't it? It's, like, you're not, you're not cancelling someone. 
I think it would be best used, or be, I think it's promiscuously used and it shouldn't be. I think it should be best used for those who have their lives destroyed, right? So if you take, you know, the woman who flew to Africa and made a joke on Twitter before she left, and by the time she'd landed, she'd lost her career, her livelihood, everything, gone, uh, because of the mob and the pressure and all the rest of it. Uh, and it was an obvious, it was a joke. It was a clear joke, and it was interpreted as being racist. That's where I think we should talk about cancel culture. It's, it's more a phenomenon of those who are, who are mobbed and ostracised and, and really have their lives ruined, have their jobs taken away from them. Those are the things that I, I would... So I, I, I'm quoted in an article from the New York Times yesterday about cancel culture, which talks about people who have been cancelled. And now I've had lots of stuff on Twitter of people saying, oh, but you've got, like, you know, you've got your book and you've got, you haven't been cancelled. And in the interview itself, I say, I have not been cancelled. I am not an example of cancel culture. Um, but there are people who are. There are people who have been. Like I say, I really mistrust bullying. And I don't like the woke bullies. That, that They don't just criticise. Calling out is... I don't like the phrase, but criticism is great. And I'm all for it. And I think more of it. That's great. Um, if you have a problem with something I've said or a joke I've made, do it. Complain. Protest even. Whatever, right? Uh, don't contact my employer and say this person should never work again. Don't try and dig up some dirt on me or some old tweet I've said or some old thing I've said and try and discredit and ruin your reputation because that's what a bully does. Mm-hmm. That's, that's all I mean. So criticism I'm for, 100%. The, the question of whether Titania so was a royalist. The that's so interesting. She, she, she doesn't like that. Like, okay, so she did a tweet at Christmas saying what the Queen should have said in her speech. And it was stuff like Wakanda forever and... Um, you know, and she took and and in that, Titania said that she should have said that the new royal baby will be raised gender neutral. And then three months later, Meghan said she might raise the baby gender neutral. <laughs> I love it when that happens. Um, that happens quite a lot. Mm. Happens quite a lot. The other, the other, the, my favourite was the Mary Poppins one. I did that. I did that tweet about her in blackface because she had the chimney soot on her face. And that was in August of last year. And then the New York Times ran an article in February of this year saying, isn't it disgusting that Mary Poppins is in blackface? Um, so I predicted that by six months. Um, it's, quite, it's quite easy to anticipate in a way. Um, yeah, I think she hates the royals. I think she does. I think she, except for Meghan. I think that's what it is. I think she, because Meghan's a victim, because she's mixed race. She's, yeah, that's, that's all she can see. So she can't see the money. She can't see the privilege. you know. And she's mates with Kate Middleton, so... Like, so she can't see all that. She can only see race. That's the thing about it. It's this monomania, isn't it? It's like they can only see things through the prism of race, gender, and sexuality. Class is a complete... Doesn't... doesn't blind spot. Complete blind spot. Mm. It's weird. And they've got these weird hypocrisies like that, haven't they? They're all really ageist. They're all really ageist. They say stuff like, oh, let, I hope all these people die so we can have another Brexit vote. <laughs> they're, oh, they're boomers. They just die. Just die, boomers. Yeah. And it's like... You're, you're going on all the time about how we need to be sensitive and not attack people for their immutable characteristics. <laughs> like, they're, they're funny people. <laughs> the, the sheer stupidity of it. Right, let's bring it back out. Um, I'm in, quite interested in why you chose um, a female persona for Titania. Hi, just a sort of thread going through my mind at the moment, and it may come to nothing, but I wonder how much this growth of woke culture sort of dovetails with the declining Christianity as a national institution in this country um, because it, it sort of replaces some of those elements like a, a sort of package of beliefs and a belief system and the sense of belonging um, but also um, uh, the, the sort of 
you know, the, the, the talk of the lack of redemption and that people aren't perfect and that sort of thing, that's something that Christianity is supposed to, at least, or, or should teach. Um, and, and the sort of concept of forgiveness. So is the decline of Christianity partially, not responsible, but part of the explanation? Okay, thank you. At the back. Yeah, I just wanted... I always strikes me, when it comes to uh, to jokes, it seems like... I, I don't know if it's genuine, but woke people seem to, the un, seem to be unable to recognise a joke. So, for example, uh, a few days ago, you know, there was the Rod Little column... And he said, you know, the day before the election, if you've got a teenage uh, child, shove some skunk under their door. And, you know, and basically he was like, do anything you can to stop them voting. And this was all over Twitter. And, you know, everyone was extremely, you know, outraged. He wants to disenfranchise the youth. And it was just, it was just so obvious it was a joke. And it was meant to be a joke. And you might not like it, but... And I just wonder, and this happens all the time, do you think that supposedly woke people genuinely take things that literally I, I just wonder I just find it hard to believe that, that, that they so genuinely can't see that that was supposed to be satirical that to me is one of the most fascinating things about all of this is the literal mindedness and I can't work out whether it's deliberate because either, either you are willfully misinterpreting it in order to make a political point maybe you think to joke about a certain subject is in itself damaging because of all these power structures or maybe you're just stupid and, and I think sometimes there is a level of stupidity going on here. I mean, I don't like to call people stupid, but how else can you interpret that? I mean, the, that Rod Little column, by the way, the thing that really got them annoyed was that he said that Muslims shouldn't be voting. So um, what he was doing is basically taking the demographics that are far more likely to vote Labour and saying, well, can't they have a religious festival and not have... You know, so... Um, and, and this was taken literally as he wants to disenfranchise the Muslim vote. You would have to be stupid to think that, wouldn't you? You'd, you'd have to be stupid. Um, or you're willfully doing it. You, but, but maybe it wasn't funny, or maybe you didn't like the joke or whatever. That, why not say that? Why not say, I don't find the joke funny? Or, you know, um, another, to give another example, maybe a more extreme one. So Andrew Lawrence, who's a comic who, who does some very edgy material, so he, he, made, he did a tweet about the fact that this male suicide rate is much higher than female suicide rate, so if feminists really want equality, they should kill themselves. <laughs> now... There was, a, um, there was a petition. There was a petition to get him banned from the BBC, never to go on the BBC again. Uh, and the, the words of the petition was interesting. Right? If it had been a petition saying, this is a disgusting joke, we find it really offensive, you shouldn't do this, I would have been fine with that. Whatever, knock yourself out. The petition said, he is inciting suicide amongst women. Right? Now, so they want us to believe that they don't understand the basic concept of a joke. So I can only conclude that stupidity. Because if you're going to... It's such an own goal. I can only conclude... So why... Then the question is, why do we have this uh, literal mindedness now? Hmm. What, where has that come from? Why... I don't understand that. I wrote an article about this because I talked about how I think it's... that we, we have degraded comedy as an art form. We don't think it's an art form because we don't go to... I said... I made explicitly the point we don't Titus Andronicus and heckle because of Shakespeare's representation of dismemberment and rape. We don't do that because we know that it's not real. We know she's okay. <laughs> We don't, we don't go up to, you know, we, uh, we, 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 don't, we don't worry about Angela Lansbury being in the vicinity of a murder, you know? <laughs> we don't, you know, we don't ask the question whether Shakira's hips are incapable of deceit. Be, be, right? Be, because we understand, we understand the difference between art. Art means artifice. It means it's not real. So we understand that difference. But when it comes to comedy, we think, oh, you're inciting violence. 
I mean, come on, grow up. And I think, I think, and what worries me is I think it's either stupidity or, it's, or it's, they, these people have been failed by education. If they genuinely don't understand, and we get it in politics now with metaphors, military metaphors are inciting violence. Calling something a surrender bill is inciting violence, right? That level, the, the MP who tweeted about uh, EU boats in our fishing areas should suffer the fate of the Belgrano. And the headline in the independent newspaper said, MP calls for the destruction of boats. Like, it's an idiot, it's a metaphor. Like, this is, and can someone who gets a job in a mainstream UK newspaper genuinely not understand the difference? Is that possible? Are we living at that level of infantilism? Or is it that people are just lying? I don't know, but it's something we really have to address. And I I think people just need to call out, if we're going to use that phrase, people who are taking things literally when they know them. They must know them. Uh, to be a joke. Anyway, that, that really annoyed I'm sorry I went on about that, but that really, that really annoys me. And particularly with stand-up, particularly with people complaining about stand-up. I had someone stand up in my show and call me a misogynist because I slagged off Theresa May. And it's like, the, the Prime Minister of this country does not need protection from me. Yeah. You know, she, that's, that is definitely punching up. Yeah. You know? And, and it was because I'd mocked her appearance. I'd been mocking all sorts. I don't do that in real life as a person. I think it's horrible. My character on stage is a bitch, so, so I do. But I'd mocked male appearance, and it didn't matter. Yeah. But then I said Theresa May looked like an NHS poster warning about the dangers of dehydration. <laughs> and, and, and suddenly I'm a misogynist. So, suddenly, because my onstage character says something nasty, because that's what he would do, I, the real Andrew Doyle, hate all women. How do you leap from that? I mean... I just, I, yeah, I'm getting a bit despairing now. It's early and I'm tired, but I, just, I do despair about that. Who's got the microphone? Stand up, please. Your poster for the festival had quotes on, very funny from somebody, hilarious from somebody else, and then The Guardian, terrible. Yeah. Was that a gag or was that a real review? No, it's real. From, oh, is it? Okay. Oh, look, I tell you what, the day The Guardian likes anything I do is the day I quit. Like, I... I, I I, I love that. I mean, you get... Um, the great thing about the Titania, right, is that the, the people who hate it sound like her. <laughs> and, it's, and it's really funny. You know, it's really funny. Like, um, the one in Edinburgh, there's a, a comedy critic for The Guardian called Brian Logan, who is known, he's known amongst comics for not being able to review properly because he can only see politics. And that was one of the first things that I was warned about him when I got into comedy. Like, he can't... He can only review on the basis of whether he agrees or not. So if he likes my work, God, what would I do? Uh, and, and one of the things he wrote was about is right-wing comedy on the rise, and there was a picture of Titania. I'm like, I'm not right-wing, mate. In fact, you're more right-wing than I am. But, but, but when people don't know about politics, but they pontificate about it, it's funny. Yeah. It is, it's, really, it's really funny. And I know I go on about The Guardian. It is a bit tongue-in-cheek. I've got friends who write for The Guardian. You know, I, I don't have a problem necessarily. But it's just, it's so, it lacks self-awareness to such a degree. It's not even the news, right? It's not really the news. It's the op-ed stuff. It's the opinion stuff. You know, you read it and you think, this has got to be a joke. Like... <laughs> You, you, they've got to be sent, but they have no humour about themselves. And that's, that's quite, quite funny to me. Although, on the news front, there is something about the Guardian that is a bit sinister. I mean, I recently saw this. There was a front cover news article about the scale of racism in our universities. It was front cover, and it said racism is endemic. And then in the data they cited, it proved that racism is basically non-existence in our universities. You wouldn't believe this. You'd have to look at the article. But front page, the headline should have been, isn't it great there's no racism now? I promise you. So that's someone in the editorial board deliberately falsifying things in order to promote, uh, in order to promote this idea that we live in this fascistic culture. That's actually really dangerous. 
So what? So yeah, I do mock the Guardian, but there is something quite dangerous about that when when ideologues, particularly in the arts as well, when ideologues are judging the arts, they're not in a position to do so. That's the bottom line. They're just not. I was just going to ask about. Um, I don't know how you felt about sort of Joe Brand made, made a joke about kind of throwing battery acid in, in Nigel Farage's face. And although I like completely believe in free speech and she can do whatever joke she wants, it was happening in a climate where people were throwing things at various politicians. And I just wondered if there is the milkshakes. Yeah, the milkshakes. And it just did make me feel. Although I completely think people should make jokes about whatever. I did think, oh, that is a bit... What if that does encourage people to throw things like, at other people? And I just wondered what you thought about that, if there is a line where actually things are a bit become a bit unacceptable. Can I answer that now? Because I, yeah. I, I don't think there is anyone who's waiting for Joe Brand's permission to throw battery acid at someone. <laughs> I, 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 I do not buy this myth that people act on jokes. It's not, it never happens. Um, uh, I, even more broadly than that, I don't believe the idea that people are um, able to be incited, that they're, they're easily incited to violence. I don't, the evidence tells us it's not true. This is one of the most fascinating things about, about... We've had six decades of study into media effects theory. It's been debunked. The data's in. We know that the public behaviour does not uh, change according to mass media consumption. That's, that's just... We know that now. So why do we all pretend that that's an article of faith, that that's true? Why do we all pretend that that's true? It's not. You know, Jess Phillips, when she had that death threat from some idiot which quoted Boris Johnson in the letter, and she said that, you know, that proves that Boris Johnson's inciting violence. It doesn't prove that. It proves that that idiot knows how to quote. That's all that does. And 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 so uh, it's one of the things that really riles me, and I think we should stop this. Um, Whenever someone says this joke is inciting this behaviour, we just have to stand up and say, where's your evidence for that? That is a faith-based position, Right? It's not true. You know, they, 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 you'd have to, the burden of proof is on you if you want to prove that. Um, Joe Brown, by the way, was doing that joke on a show called Heresy. And the joke, the, the, the show was all about saying things that you're not meant to say. That's the context. And if you listen to the recording, people are laughing. So the people who were there got that it was a joke. And again, it comes back to this literal minded thing, doesn't it? It's like when the, the, the set, Louis C.K.'s set was leaked and he was talking about the school shootings. And suddenly the left wing media are saying, uh, Louis C.K. Is, uh, thinks that school shootings are funny. Again, of course he doesn't. And it, I shouldn't have to say that he doesn't. I think as a, collectively we have to start ridiculing these people who, who say these stupid things. Um, Joe Brown's just a very funny comic, and maybe that wasn't her best joke, whatever, you know. And, but, um, and by all means, if, I think if you were offended by it, you've got the right to say, I'm really offended by that, all of that. But a police investigation... That joke was investigated by our police force. We, we, we are, like, so I'm not saying there's a big free speech crisis, but what I'm saying is that we are moving towards something that is creepy. There is something really authoritarian in this. The police have no business investigating, not just jokes, but anything anyone says, full stop. And what, we won't repeal those hate speech laws because there's no appetite in Parliament to do so. We need so, because, because of the woke hegemony, right? Because of the woke dominance, no one's going to stand up and say, let's get rid of Section 127 of the Electronic Communications Act. The one that says that if you say something grossly offensive online, you can go to prison. Let's get rid of that. No one's going to stand up and do that because it's going to be an unpopular thing. Or they think it's going to be unpopular. It's not unpopular, but they think it will be. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a real problem. But yeah, police getting involved with jokes, that terrifies the hell out of me. 
Your reference to Shakespearean violence just reminded me of something. Very recently in Manchester at the Royal Exchange with the showing of Macbeth, they had signs um, as all the school children were coming in um, who are obviously studying Macbeth at school, so presumably A-levels, maybe GCSEs, but the signs were a warning sign to say this, this play contains adult material and um, also the use of balloons. Um, <laughs> so... It just reminded me of that, because it isn't just comedy. It has stretched yeah. to drama. It has stretched... I mean, I was thinking, well, what are the teachers talking about when they're teaching Macbeth? And what is the theatre talking about with that sort of sign? But if everybody is sick of it, then how bad does it have to get before there's some sort of change? Yeah. And what will that, what's that change going to look like? Or do we just need to keep persevering and keep um, nailing this every time we see it? Following up the previous question... Um, I'm in the position where I've spent a lot of time stopping people kick back against uh, bad jokes, stuff of this sort, uh, abusive stuff, because I believe in freedom of speech. However, the pitch has got so high that whenever people I work with speak, they get shouted down, abused, sacked, threatened. It's very hard to maintain a line and say, don't kick back when people also behave badly. The Joe Brown case is a case in point. Do you think it is... How far does one have to sort of, sort of keep your, your chin set against the abuse when you are closed down and closed down and closed down before you say, well, sod it, they're just as bad as us, to have a go at them too? And rather than, I can understand, and I don't know if you can understand how, having been on the receiving end of the silencing, that in the end you start saying, damn it, when they step over the woke line, we're going to have a go at them. Yeah. I just wanted to ask about the whole culture of taking things out of context and you see in headlines about uh, misinterpretation. I just wanted to know if, uh, what your opinion was on how much of it is genuine misinterpretation or if it's sort of self-awareness and sort of trying to twist their words uh, with like, genuine intent. Um, I think I've covered... I, I don't know is the answer to that question. I, I, I just don't know what the intention is. I'm, I'm as baffled by it as anyone else. Um, in terms of what you were saying about... Um, yeah, I understand that temptation, isn't it? Like, there was a real sense, particularly on, amongst the right, there was a real sense of schadenfreude when one of their own gets in trouble, when, when people go after Joe Brand, who's known for being a lefty, or when people went after, when Sarah Silverman lost her job uh, for blacking up in a sketch, which was an obviously anti-racist sketch, but again, context doesn't matter. And Justin Trudeau, you know, there's been a lot of schadenfreude about Justin Trudeau, who's the wokest of the woke, um, but apparently spends more time in blackface than out of it. So, um, so I get why you'd want to attack and attack and attack and do exactly the things that they've done to you. That's human nature, uh, but that's how you get the endless spiral of violence, isn't it? So you have to be consistent in your principles, I think. And if you think that, if we're going to call it cancel culture, let's call it that, uh, if you think that's wrong, don't engage in it yourself, I would say. I mean, Nigel Farage did say that he felt that Joe Brown should be investigated by the police. But if he's going to say that, then he can't in the next breath talk about the importance of free speech. You know? You know... Don't undermine yourself like that. In fact, it's about holding on to the moral high ground, isn't it? Mm. I think. Um, in terms of the other question about Macbeth, I mean, balloons are scary, right? They, well, you know that moment they're about to pop. It's horrible. Um, uh, I, so, yeah, the, that's interesting. I, so I, I did a panel recently in Cardiff where there was a guy who was the head of the Welsh National Opera, and they had a production of um, Dead Man Walking, you know, the Susan Sarandon film, but they then turned into an opera. And... The idea of that film is that there's a guy on death row and throughout the film you don't know if he's guilty or not, if he committed this act of rape and violence. Um, 
And what's really interesting about the film is you, you learn that he did do it. And then it becomes about the ethics of... It's not about someone who's innocent and... It's someone who did some, this horrible, horrible thing. But is it right still to, for the state to execute them? So in this production, they made a, a choice to stage the rape at the start of the play. So you see it. But they also then decided on the, the board, on the committee, to contact audience members in advance to warn them about this and suggest that they might want to turn up ten minutes late. <laughs> so now here's the problem with that, of course. And this is, again comes back to this thing about artistry generally, not about comedy, artistry. There's an artistic choice to see the rape. It affects everything else. It's really interesting. It affects everything else, our audience's experience of it. It's a decision made by the creator. And if you want to enjoy a work of art on its own terms, then you, then you go along and you watch the whole thing, you know? But if you have a warning, a trigger warning, if you have some way to have an edited version of it, a sanitised version, then you're not, you're not treating it as a work of art. So I think there's a misunderstanding of what, what art is about. Hi, um, going back to Joe Brand, I'm sorry if, if it's getting boring. I personally, given the circumstances, I don't think that that joke should have been broadcast, but I feel it was a bit unfair on Joe Brand. I mean, it was a live recording, but it wasn't being broadcast live, so shouldn't the criticism really have been to the editor? Shouldn't he have just cut that one out? I mean, I know in these live recordings, when comedies do, comedians do this, they throw it all out. And they kind of expect the editor to kind of protect their back by maybe not including every single joke. So, Andrew, we keep hearing that you're left-wing. If you were standing in this election, what kind of manifesto would you be standing on? Cut taxes, raise taxes, increase spending, decrease spending? Apologies, I was in a few minutes late. You maybe you covered it. Um, God, what's wrong with you lot? <laughs> <laughs> it's early, though, right? Yeah. I, I'd noticed that you, you studied at Wadham College at Oxford, which is known to be quite a left-wing college, and I wonder whether that started you down this path somehow or you got material from there. So, yeah, I'd be quite curious to hear about that. So it's a question about verification of uh, facts. So I think there's a, a couple of times where you put some statistics forward for things. So the whole work culture, I believe... So where I work and the circles I go in, I don't really experience it very much, but it feels bigger than it is because of, I suppose, the internet. So the question is, how do you know that it's small as opposed to more, per- more pervasive than it is? Where do we get the facts from to verify that? Oh, wondering yeah. which party Andrew will be voting for in the election. Yeah. OK, there you go. Uh, and we can squeeze one more in there. Kind of briefly, I mean, what's funny with that Rod Little piece that was sort of mentioned kind of earlier at the back, and you kind of did it, there was a, someone did a video where they were showing this to kind of sort of students, and it was like to show how outraged they were by kind of reading this thing. And people, people were reading out sections, and they were laughing when they were saying, because they could see it was a sort of a joke, and obviously... They took the bait because they knew that they were kind of taking the bait and was like, well, I'm going to go out and vote and show him, which was probably obviously Rod Liddell's kind of point to be provocative. But it was kind of interesting that it was kind of framed in that sort of way of you should be sort of offended and it would be reported in that way. But people could kind of get that. And that's often, there's such kind of opportunism here about the way in which things are kind of framed. It's like that's the sort of nature. Somebody strips something out of context and says, oh, this person said this thing. and didn't say they made a joke about it. And most people kind of just go along with things because they sort of hear it. It's only when they're kind of sort of challenged a little bit. And so there is still just that sort of need to kind of call people kind of out on, on actually whether this is actually the collective response yeah. to things or whether it's just the views of a kind of very small self-serving group of people at the top of society who then say what you can and can't say. And that's the kind of sort of challenge. And that's obviously what comedy has to try and punch through and what's what satire has to try and punch through. Yeah. I, think, I think that question very much relates to yours, which is about... So, I, I mean, it is about the, the extremes in the culture war are just that. They are the extreme. Most people aren't, they don't know what 
words like cis mean. They don't know. You know they, when I tweeted out the other day about the Labour MP talking about mansplaining, she was accusing a, Lib, um, a Green Party candidate of mansplaining just for having an opinion, basically. <laughs> uh, lots of comments are like, what's mansplaining? And, of course, if you're part in the culture war, you know what... Like, really? You don't know what that... Most people don't. It's an experiential thing. You can, like, I talk to students. I go out and talk to people. And, and, and you can tell that it's just not the case that, that you know, we live in this... Uh, in the climate that the, the culture warriors on either side would like to pretend. The reason why I think it's a concern is that it's the people with clout that perpetuate it. That's why I'm concerned. If it was just the numbers, if it was just a minority of people who take offence at everything. We could just ignore them and get on with our lives, but we can't because they run the BBC, they run the, you know, they, they're in power. And that's why it's a problem. Um, but I think we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that it will be won the right way because we are the majority. That's what I'd say. Um, what was the other... Remind me, I'm sorry. Oh, yes, so, uh, yes, absolutely. Tax the rich, absolutely. I'll tell you what. I, so I, I, w- I would say... Uh, no, I believe in uh, complete proportionate taxation for, those, for the super wealthy. Um, I do. Believe, I think the NHS, the welfare state, are absolutely key. Uh, I'm not a nationalist. You know, I believe in a top quality education for all. I, d- I don't know how this is anything other than left wing, to be honest. Um, but you know, where am I more conservative? Uh, I think I've got some. Cult- I think I'm quite culturally conservative, I suppose. In, but then so was George Orwell. Uh, you know, I believe there are some. Re- there's, there's real value in 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 the things we learn from tradition in the things we learn from the past. The past is a kind of trial and error situation. You know, we learn from that. And I think we lose that at our peril. When it comes to the arts, I'm quite conservative. I think you need to know the classics to, to, to be able to do anything with it. So, but I don't, I, because I don't trust ideology, I'm not going to put myself in like, I'm, I'm a left wing. I, the only reason I use that phrase left is because just if you were to write down my views and values, it would just more correlate with left than right. So that just seems, just objectively speaking. Um, but I don't go around saying I'm a, I'm a leftist and therefore I must agree with everything that the left are saying, clearly not. Um, who I'd vote for then, that I'm really... I don't know. I have no idea. I, so I'm... I, I voted for Corbyn last time. I can't do that anymore. Um, I think he's, he's bought into the identity politics thing way too much for me. He, I mean, you know, when he did that um, appearance at Loughborough and he charged £10 extra for white people, I, I just sort of think... <coughs> And although, although that kind of... It's, it is racism, right? So, so we have to get back to the, the dictionary definition of racism, which is treating people differently because of their skin colour. Um, so, yeah, I, I can't... And also, you know, announcing his pronouns and hiring Munro Bergdorf to be an advisor and all this sort of very woke stuff. It's, it's, uh, it's bad news. And, and by the way, it doesn't sit well with traditional left. That's why Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn trying to be woke doesn't work. Because if you're truly about class consciousness, you're not woke. You're really not. It, th- those two things cannot sub- coincide. If you're going to be woke, you're bourgeois, right? So, yeah, I don't know. I, I've never voted Tory. I don't see that happening. Uh, I think at the moment the most important thing is Brexit because I think unless we have a democracy, unless we live in a de- I think th- it's not even about Brexit now. Uh, if we had a second referendum, the vote wouldn't be, do you want to leave the EU? The vote would be, do you want to live in a democracy or not? That's how important I think it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I'd have voted Remain... I'd be the most adamant lever right now because I care about living in a democracy. We have to. The, the stakes are far too high. So I think in terms of my vote, I'll most likely come down with whoever's going to implement that and then we can deal with the rest afterwards. I really fear for it because I think 
you know, we have this unwritten constitution, we have a parliament who have just been making up as they go along, a speaker who's been defying even the advice of his clerks who have told him that what you're doing is unconstitutional, but he doesn't care because he's so politically driven against, against Brexit. That's a really dangerous situation to be in. You've got a Supreme Court that was just invented by the Blair government who uh, are activists, who, uh, who you know, implemented a decision on the basis of, of their political views. It's dangerous. Um, I think we need to sort Brexit out Think about our constitution and how we, how we reform that. Think about how we reform the role of speaker uh, and, 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 and be a democracy again. Because I think at the moment, we're not, mm. to be honest. And one last question for me, just to round up. What's next for Andrew Dorr? What's next for Tasania McGrath? She's sticking around. I know. And what's next uh, for you? I get bored of stuff. So I don't, I don't think I'm going to do it for ages. Mm. But I'm going to try and develop her and do something else with her. Maybe that's televisual or radio or something else because uh, you had the show at the fringe. I did a live show yeah which was great and um, yeah I liked doing something different with it um, she's going to get banned from Twitter anyway so um, which is fine I'm fine with that like that, that uh, it's going to happen like, so she got another seven day ban recently a couple of weeks ago um, she's had so many uh, lockdowns that it's only a matter of time and they're just looking for the excuse and I reckon what will happen is I'll get drunk and send something that I know will get a ban I think that's what's going to happen <laughs> Don't know when. Watch his space. <laughs> and with that, can we please thank Andrew? You can find out more about the festival by heading to our website at thebattleofideas.org.uk. To stay in touch with our work at the Academy of Ideas, make sure you subscribe to this podcast and sign up to our newsletter by following the link below this recording.